we're walking our way through the book of Revelation, and uh, last week we did just three simple things. I know it felt like 17 things, but it really was just three simple things. Uh, firstly, we explored something that I've said many times uh, up here, and that is that in order to read the Bible as a grown-up, you need to focus on the literary style. You need to know what kind of writing you're reading, history, uh, poetry, parable, or in this case, apocalyptic. And we saw last week that you could define apocalyptic literature as a Jewish literary style from the ancient world used in anxious times to unveil vital universal truths through coded imagery. And so long as you understand that it's a literary style, all those weird bits aren't so weird. A 16-year-old sitting in a church in the first century got exactly what was going on in this book, even though all these years later, because we're not used to the style, we find ourselves weirded out by it. But I also made the point last week that the book of Revelation is a simple letter from the Apostle John, who has been exiled onto the island of Patmos by the Roman authorities, uh, to the seven churches. It's actually just a letter to the seven churches of what uh, they called Asia, what we call Turkey. And so it shouldn't be too weird. It uh, presents us with the same kind of theology, ultimately, uh, that you find in all of the New Testament letters. But before John gets to the seven mini-letters that we've begun this morning, he has a vision, which is the third thing we saw last week, a vision of Christ in His glory walking amongst His people. And as I said last week, this is exactly what Christians need when they're going through anxious times. Because in anxious times, whether in the ancient world when you're oppressed by the Romans or the modern world where there are different kinds of pressures on Christians, the temptation is always twofold. The temptation to fear or to adjust. Fear is when you keep your head down. You're so worried about what the general public thinks of you that you just a very quiet Christian, you console yourself with getting on with the business, but you never stick your head above the parapet, never say boo at work, uh, you just keep to yourself. Fear, fear. But the other way people cope with the dissonance between Christian belief and the pressures of the world is to adjust our beliefs. Problem solved, right? You give up the tricky, controversial, hard beliefs regarding theology or ethics. But the antidote to it all, whether the anxiety that leads to fear or the anxiety that leads to adjustment, the antidote to it all is this vision of Christ's majesty that we saw last week. When you know that He is glorious, holds all things in His hands, and walks among you, it causes fear to dissipate. And the temptation to adjust your faith will flee. And so I ask you to do a thought experiment this week, you may remember, uh, which I tried to practice all week myself and found it really quite helpful. So uh, one of us liked uh, last week's sermon. Um, and that is, to, uh, in, your, in your week, to notice the times when you feel anxious as a Christian. Whether that anxiety expresses itself as fear 
to be a public Christian, or maybe in a temptation to adjust what you believe. In those moments, picture Christ in all His glory walking with you. And you watch the anxiety flee. Well, that's last week. And we find this same double message. Comforting those who are fearful. Challenging those who are tempted to adjust the faith. This same double message throughout the whole book of Revelation, but especially in these little letters to each of the seven churches that begin uh, here in chapter 2. Only two of which we're going to have time uh, to do today. And today I want to also explore just three things. Just three little things. I've got three preliminaries for you. Two commendations and one challenge. No, they're just three points. Look, A, B, C. Firstly, there are some simple preliminaries. I want to tell you about the cities to which these first two letters uh, were written, uh, Ephesus and Smyrna. Ephesus was uh, a giant city by ancient standards, uh, about 200,000 people we can work out from the archaeology, uh, which makes it the third or fourth largest city in the ancient world. It was a great harbor city uh, and therefore a center for commerce, a center for religion. It was seen as the kind of gateway to the east. If you were traveling from the western part of the Roman Empire, you often would go through Ephesus to the rest of the world. So a great melting pot as well. No wonder Paul spent two years there uh, in the, in the uh, late 50s uh, AD, trying to proclaim the gospel throughout this region. But it seems that after Paul has gone, by the mid-60s, the Apostle John comes and lives in Ephesus and is the remaining eyewitness for that whole region, right through to the late 90s when uh, this letter is written. Smyrna is just 60 kilometers to the north. It's also a harbor town, an important town, uh, but about half the size of Ephesus, 100,000. The Christians there were experiencing severe persecution. Down in Ephesus, things are getting testy. Up in Smyrna, it has already broken out, and we just heard from the letter to the Smyrnans that Christianity is about to face a severe persecution. We don't know the size of the Christian population in either of these towns, uh, presumably a minority, but we do know that when the Apostle John uses the word church in Ephesus, he doesn't mean a building like this yet. There weren't any buildings for churches uh, till maybe the third century. Um, in this early first century period, they're meeting as 20 to 50 believers in homes throughout the cities. So maybe multiple gatherings of just 20 to 50 people. That's what the churches are. But why then are the letters addressed to an angel? The second preliminary. That's weird. Each of them is addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus, verse 1. Or uh, in verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Oh, that's just really weird. There are three possible interpretations. And depending on which day of the week it is, uh, I change my mind. The first is that it's a reference to a kind of guardian angel. Of each church, which I know sounds like a puzzling idea, but there's some evidence that Jews in this period thought there were guardian angels for synagogues. And so it may actually just reflect that Jewish belief that there was some sort of cosmic protection uh, for each church. 
The second uh, possible interpretation is that it's just picture language, as so much in the book of Revelation is, for the vibe of the church, the character of the church. We might say, to the spirit of the church, right? But to the angel of the church, just maybe a pictorial way of putting that. The third possibility is that it just means the human leader of the church, since angelos, what we translate as angel, just means messenger. Usually it means some sort of cosmic messenger, yes, angel, but often it can just mean the messenger. If that's the right interpretation, the reference at the very beginning of the letter, in chapter 1, verse 3, to the one who reads aloud this book is probably a reference to the leader of the congregation, charged with reading out and teaching uh, the book. So, which of these is, is the correct interpretation of the angel of the church? I have no idea. Although it is Sunday, so I'm going to say the second interpretation. Ask me tomorrow. But before each of the church hears the letter to its own congregation... We have to learn the premise of each of the letters. Notice all seven letters open by reminding us of something that was said of Jesus from chapter 1. Something about Jesus' greatness or his mercy. So you can see there in verse 1 of chapter 2, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's a reference to the glory of Jesus in the vision we've just heard. Or at the beginning of the Smyrna letter, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. A reference to something that's also said in chapter 1. I think there's an important point here. The premise, not only of the letters, but of the Christian life, isn't merely the command of Jesus, but his greatness and mercy. It's only as you understand who it is that speaks to you that following him makes sense. Don't think of this as some external command. Oh, if I, you know, if I eventually want to progress in Christianity, I've got to put up with those difficult words. No, no, no. The premise of the whole thing is once you know Jesus as glorious, as the one who died and rose for you, all of this stuff makes sense. That's where the motivation is to be found and nowhere else. This one, this glorious one, walks among us. That's the opening line to Ephesus. The one who holds the stars walks among the golden lampstands. Lampstands refers to the churches. We are meant to have our minds concentrated by the thought that Jesus is amongst us today. He's here. Look, there he is. Uh, Last week, we had an interesting visitor to church, unbeknownst to me, Professor Troy Martin, who's Professor of Religious Studies at St. Xavier University in Chicago, a world authority on the background of the New Testament, who just happened to come to our church. And I didn't know that until uh, someone introduced me to him at the end. He's out here doing a series of lectures for Macquarie University. So, of course, when I met him, I'm going, oh, no, what did I, what would he think about my definition of apocalyptic? Will he have appreciated the kind of biblical illusions that I referred to? Talk about concentrating the mind. And yet, forget that. Jesus is amongst us. And he walks with us every day. That's what concentrates the mind. 
Well, they're the preliminaries. Notice the way, as soon as Jesus gets going in his letter, he commends these churches for two things. For their resilience in hardship and for their theological discernment. Let me take these in turn. Verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. I love the repetition of, I know, I know. Jesus knows the hardship. Jesus knows the struggles. Jesus knows that by now you ought to be weary. But you're not, he says in verse 3. You've not grown weary. I know, I know. And this is the sole theme, actually, of the letter to Smyrna. The Ephesians get two themes. They get a commendation and then they get a challenge. But the Smyrnans come out scot-free. The Smyrnans are awesome. All they get is commendation from Jesus for hanging in there, for their resilience in hardship. Look, look over at um, the Smyrna letter from verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you were about to suffer. I imagine if people in the congregation went, it's going to get worse. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days, just a round number in Jewish numerology. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as a victor's crown. Uh, This is a little bit weird, I know, all this stuff about a synagogue of Satan and so on, but uh, the Jewish population in Smyrna, we know from the archaeology, was pretty large, actually. Uh, Certainly larger than the Christian population in the first century. And it seems that they were slandering, which is a legal term, slandering the Christians to the Roman authorities in the town. Maybe dobbing them in with anonymous pamphlets, which is something we know was happening in this period. The governors would just receive anonymous pamphlets listing all the Christians. There's a Christian at number 10, there's a Christian at number 52, and so on. Maybe that's what it's a reference to. And throughout the book of Revelation, we will soon discover the words devil and Satan almost always, not always, almost always refer to the Roman authorities. This will become crystal clear as we get through. So what this seems to be saying is the synagogue of Satan is just a Jewish synagogue in Smyrna that's collaborating with Rome against the Christians, slandering them in legal sense. And and of course, the result is financial hardship, verse 9. This is hard for us to understand, but he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, though you are rich. This is not just mere sort of sociological poverty. Um, it, It is the poverty that comes from being pressured by Roman authorities and excluded from society. In a town of 100,000, if you're a Christian family, it's so easy to exclude you from the various guilds that you want to be involved with, uh, not being served at shops, and so on. 
The financial hardship of following Christ was very real in the ancient world, and it's true for some Christians today. I'm not sure if I've told you before about my guide in Cairo. Michael is his name, a beautiful Coptic Christian. But he uh, graduated with his medical degree just as Islamists in Egypt were ramping up their pressure on the Coptic Christians, who are the original Christians, uh, the original people of Egypt before Islamic invasions. And um, he couldn't get a job as a doctor. He spent years studying medicine and no one would give him a job because it was now sort of um, the, the pressure of hospitals to exclude the Copts was very real. And so he was a tour guide. And as things got worse and worse in Egypt, he um, had to move out of being a tour guide to being a mobile phone salesman. That's his wrist, and that's his tattoo on his wrist. All Copts have a tattoo of a cross on their wrist, which they get in infancy, actually, to say, we are the people of the cross, come what may. Financial hardship. And more. It gets worse uh, for the Smyrnans. They don't just experience financial hardship. Look what Jesus says there in verse 10. Don't be afraid of what's about to happen, what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil, the Romans, will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. As I say, a round number doesn't necessarily mean 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. You're going to die. Some of you are going to die. This is strong stuff. Last week, I quoted a little portion of a letter we have that we can date to about 10 to 15 years after the book of Revelation. A letter from the Roman governor, Pliny, who governed the region just about 50 or 60 kilometers north of Smyrna. And he writes to Emperor Trajan about the Christians. So within years of this letter to the Smyrnans, this is what's going on. For the moment, Pliny says to Trajan, this is the line I have taken with all persons brought before me on the charge of being Christians. I have asked them in person if they are Christians with a warning of the punishments awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. But now that I have begun to deal with this problem, the charges are becoming more widespread. An anonymous pamphlet has been circulated which contains the names of a number of accused persons. This question seems to be worthy of your consideration, O Emperor, especially in view of the number of persons endangered, endangered by Christianity. For it is not only the towns, but the villages and rural districts too, which are infected through contact with this wretched cult. I think, though, that it is still possible for it to be checked. Oh my goodness, how wrong was Pliny? But we know what the authorities did to try and check the movement of Christians. And many first and second century believers lost their lives for the gospel. And it's interesting, through the book of Revelation, suffering for the gospel is true victory. Did did you notice um, both letters, in fact all seven letters end 
with a reference to being victorious. Look at verse 7, the Ephesian letter, ends with, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. In other words, God's new creation, the restoration of Eden. But look at verse 11 as well, the end of the Smyrna letter. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. I want you to notice something that's... And all, all the letters end in the same way. I want you to notice, John is not saying, if you suffer, I will make you victorious. Victorious doesn't refer to what happens on the other side of suffering. Victorious is the word throughout the whole book of Revelation for suffering through to the end and giving your life for Christ. That is being victorious. If we had time, I'd run you through all the references to this. But, but in chapter 12, there's this amazing apocalyptic vision of the dragon, Rome, fighting the people of God, right? And then there's this glorious scene in the middle that says, now the people of God are victorious. They have shed their blood for the Lord. My point is, for John, victory is losing well. Christian winning is going all the way to the cross. Bearing our cross, come what may. Well, Jesus commends the Ephesians and the Smyrnans for their resilience in hardship, but also for their theological discernment. There's a point of praise for them. I bet some of you were confronted by the compliment Jesus pays the Ephesians in verse 2. Did you wince a little bit? I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. The wicked people here are not the so-called non-Christians outside the church. No, the wicked people are the false apostles, the false teachers that were already, by the end of the first century, traveling around teaching uh, things that were contrary uh, to the gospel. It may be a reference to the Nicolaitans, who are referenced there down in verse 6. But you have this in your favor, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Nicolaitans are also mentioned in chapter 215, because the church in Pergamon is actually dabbling with the Nicolaitans. Ephesians aren't. The Ephesians are hating the practices of the Nicolaitans. Pergamon's actually sucked in by it, and we'll get to that some other time down the track. Um, who are the Nicolaitans? I'm glad you asked. We don't really know. Uh, most scholars think it's the first sign of the so-called Gnostics, the Gnostic Christians, who denied physicality, denied the importance of the body, denied that Jesus came in a body, denied material reality, so it didn't matter what you did in your body. It's only the body after all. Sin, don't sin, doesn't matter. Gorge yourself, be an ascetic, doesn't matter. It's only the body. Maybe, maybe, maybe. The word Nicolaitans is just the word victory team. Yeah, like Nike, right? Nike, it's the same, same word, victory. They're the victory team. And we don't know whether this is actually what they call themselves or it's one of John's little puns. There are millions of puns throughout Revelation, right? Um, he may just mean 
the so-called victory team. But either way, their path to victory is compromising the gospel. Whereas John will say repeatedly, true victory is suffering for the gospel. Well, I bet you were a little bit troubled by you do not tolerate. Because, of course, you know, here we are in the 21st century, the sort of principal virtue of our culture is tolerance. Yeah? Tolerance. The view that, you know, you're meant to accept all views as equally valid. Sure, have your own view, but don't think it's better than anyone else's view. Okay? Everyone's view is just true for them. Sweet. I just want to say, Christianity is not tolerant in that sense of the word. It ain't. There is no way the Islamic claim that Jesus was a mere man who didn't even die on a cross is equally valid to the doctrine that he is the Lord God and he did die on a cross. No way. No way is the secular idea that we're good through and through and only getting better equal to Jesus' teaching that we are fallen and deserving of judgment. We don't tolerate. In fact, it gets worse. It says we are to hate, hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. This is really worth spotting, guys, because we are so duped by our culture. This is one of the areas where anxiety leads to adjustment. Yes, Jesus called us to love all people, even enemies, but he commends intolerance to views that are contrary to the gospel. Love all human beings, even and perhaps especially enemies, but hate ideas that are contrary to the gospel. I'm not making this up. Well, for some today, I bet all Jesus wants to say to you is, well done. I know, I know what you do for me. I know the hardships you have faced, the way you have endured, the way you have just picked yourself up out of the weariness and kept praying and kept trying to love, and kept reading the Bible, and kept going to church, and all the things you do, and all the way you keep to the truth, I know. Others may not know. The, the church staff may not know all that you do for the Lord. I'm sure we don't. But some of us just need to hear today from Jesus... I know what you do. Well done. Well, the Lord commends the Ephesians and the Smyrnans for their resilience and for their discernment. But he's also got a challenge. For the Ephesians, anyway. Smyrnans, as I say, come out looking pretty good. Ephesians, though have this challenge, verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. Oh boy. 
Can you, can you imagine hearing that in Ephesus for the first time? Yet I hold this against you. Hey, I just want to clear up, uh, because I think this is a bad use of English in this translation, because when we say, I hold this against you, we, we mean like it's a grudge, don't, don't we? There's no way this, this is saying that. Kata echo su just means I have this against you. I don't know if that makes much difference to you, but if you were thinking, hold this against you, sounds like holding over you. That's not what Jesus means. I do have this against you, is really what he's saying. But what does he have against the Ephesians? Look at this. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. What is this love they had at first? Is it their love of God has waned? Or is it their love of neighbor that's waned? He just says, the love you had at first, without clarification. And there's debate about this, but I genuinely think it's a reference to love of neighbor, not love of God. Partly because he's already praised them for suffering for my name, for holding to the truth. These things sound like love for God, right? But now he rebukes them for lack of love. It's almost, well, in my view, almost certainly love of neighbor. The other reason I think this is because we have another letter John the Apostle wrote, probably to the Ephesian town. It's called 1 John. And 1 John, if you know 1 John, the little letter of 1 John has 16 references to loving your neighbor in five chapters. It's obsessed with love of neighbor. And it seems to have been written to the same town that this letter is written to. Here's a central passage in 1 John. Listen to the kind of thing the Apostle John would say to congregations. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves God has been... Sorry, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And I think that stands behind the reference to you have forsaken the love you had at first. This was a congregation that would do incredibly loving things to one another and maybe the wider community, but that has waned. There's a lovely story told about the Apostle John by St. Jerome about the year 400, but he seems to be relying on an earlier source. We don't know for sure this story is true, but here it is from St. Jerome writing about the year 400. The blessed John the Evangelist, the author of Revelation, the author of the Gospel of John, the author of 1 John, lived in Ephesus until extreme old age. He got off Patmos and returned to Ephesus. His disciples could barely carry him to church, and he could not muster the voice to speak many words. During individual gatherings, he usually said nothing but, little children love one another. The disciples and brothers in attendance, annoyed because they always heard the same words, finally said, teacher, why 
do you always say this? He replied, because it is the Lord's commandment and it is sufficient. Well, if this story is historical, it fits with this reading of the letter to the same church, to the Ephesians. They loved God, but their love of neighbor had waned. Not that we can separate the two loves. John is clear in his letter, 1 John 4, that the two loves are connected, right? Um, whoever does not, uh, sorry, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us, sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Man, this is one of the most beautiful um, passages in the New Testament because it, it explains clearly the logic of love. The logic of love goes like this. God has shown his love for you. Don't start with your love for God. No, he has loved you first. As a response to that, you love God. But inseparably, you also love human beings. So the remedy to lack of love for others isn't try harder. Please don't hear this as a try harder sermon. The remedy is right there. Focus on the love God has for you in Jesus Christ. This is love that he gave his life on a cross to atone for all of your lack of love. And because of this, inspired by this, we love so if you're feeling a lack of love, you go back to the cross. You don't just try harder. The warning is stark, is it not, in verse 5? If they don't, yikes. Second half of verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. How to put this? Jesus has no use for a church that doesn't love. It's useless to him. So he'll remove it. It may still stand there as a building, a kind of monument to the love they had at first, maybe. But Jesus has removed the true church from the church. Wow. Wow. I once received a letter, a bit like this letter, not from Jesus though, and I've probably told you about this before, but it was in the early days of my full-time ministry. I was touring Australia and the world, preaching, singing, um, seeing many people come to Christ, off loving God, serving the world and neglecting my friends and family back in Sydney. Because I was off doing really important things. And I knew a few of my friends and family were really struggling. But I had more important things to do, right? And one time I got home, we were only in Sydney maybe 
two months a year, I got a letter in the post, like a real letter. And it was addressed to, I kid you not, the fabulously famous John Dixon. (sighs) And I knew the handwriting. It was from my little brother. Yes, the one that looks like a girl in that photo. (laughs) Next to the guy with the helmet haircut. He was a little older by the time he wrote this letter. He was a new Christian. And he wrote me this letter, conscious that I'd been neglecting friends and family for a long time. He wrote this letter where he taught me about love. He quoted passages from 1 John, I remember very clearly, and the uh, John chapter 13 Jesus on his knees washing his disciples' feet. And Jamie said, it's not just about going off and serving God. It's about caring for people. Huh. You know, my first instinct was to say, how dare my little brother teach me? And then he ended the letter by saying, you know, it really came home to me the other day, John. Mum, who wasn't a Christian at the time, just said to me, you, Jamie give a much better advertisement of Christianity than your hyper-Christian brother. I was undone. Of course, I can't say, and from that moment on, I have, you know, because I know who I'm talking to. <laughs> but it was, it was the first time I came face-to-face with my inherent tendency to be all about the ministry, all about progress, all about God and forget the love of neighbour. There's every indication the Ephesians heeded the call of this letter. How do we know? We have another letter written to the Ephesians. It's not a New Testament letter, but it was written by this guy. I don't know if you've ever heard of Ignatius of Antioch, one of the great Christians, a bishop in Antioch and an early martyr for the faith. And we have six of his letters when he was arrested in Antioch and taken with Roman soldiers all the way to Rome where we know he was executed under the uh, Trajan, the Emperor Trajan. But along the way, he's got, he sends these letters to the great churches, and one of them is to Ephesus. So they were still going 15 years later when Ignatius wrote these words to them, calling on them to love even their enemies. Because it's clear the Ephesians were still struggling against the Romans. Pray continually for the rest of humanity as well, that they may find God. For there is hope of repentance. It doesn't look like it, but there is. So allow them to be instructed by you, at least by your deeds. In response to their anger, be modest. In response to their boasts, be humble. In response to their slander, offer prayers. In response to their errors, be steadfast in the faith. In response to their cruelty, be gentle. Do not be eager to imitate them. Let us show by our gracious forbearance that we are their brothers and sisters. And let us be eager to be imitators 
of the Lord. And within a year, Ignatius himself is killed. I love about this letter that he's making clear that love is not just the internal DNA of the church, it's our stance toward those who oppose us. We might hate some of the ideas out there, but we love people. We're gentle to people. We can do better than this. If the archaeology of Ephesus is anything to go by, we know that the Ephesian church not only survived as a persecuted minority, within a century, they basically took over the whole town. Without any armies, without any political power, they converted everyone. Well, maybe not everyone, but a, but a huge proportion. There are many churches in Ephesus by the 4th and 5th centuries. And one of them, this one on the screen, is 130 metres long by 65 metres wide. That is almost the size of St Paul's Cathedral in London. But it's from the year 500 for a town of fewer than 200,000 by then. Man, oh man. I think the Ephesians heeded the call. They heard the Lord Jesus say, I have this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. I will remove your lampstand if you don't repent. Well, they repented and changed the world. How will we respond to the letters of Jesus today? For some, yes, the Lord just wants to say, I know. I know your endurance. I know the hardships you put up with. I know you ought to be weary by now, but, but, you, but you put one foot in front of the other. I know. And I'd be thrilled if some of you who know that that's the Spirit's message to you today, you just walk out of here going, Jesus knows. And then, I'm sure, the message to the Ephesian church it's going to be relevant to some. Sure, you're diligent, disciplined, theologically discerning. But there's a lack of love. Please, with me, turn. Not just try harder. Return to the cross. This is love, the same John wrote. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Since God so loved us, let us love one another. Lord, we know that you walk amongst us. We praise you for these words to the Ephesians and the Smyrnans. Lord, write these words on our hearts that we might be transformed, that we might be encouraged that we might repent and be people resilient in hardship, 
theologically discerning and who love. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.